Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, the Lord speaks to us through Matthew 6, verses 5 through 18. Hoy Dios nos habla a través de su palabra en Mateo 6, versículos 5 al 18. Y cuando ores, no seas como los hipócritas, porque ellos aman el orar en pie en las sinagogas y en las esquinas de las calles para ser vistos de los hombres. De cierto os digo que ya tienen su recompensa. Mas tú, cuando ores, entra en tu aposento y cerrada la puerta, ora a tu padre que esté en secreto, y tu padre que ve en lo secreto te recompensará en público. Y orando, no uséis vanas repeticiones como los gentiles, que piensan que por su palabrería serán oídos. No os hagáis, pues, semejantes a ellos, porque vuestro Padre sabe de qué cosas tenéis necesidad, antes que vosotros le pidáis. Vosotros, pues, oraréis así. Padre nuestro que estás en los cielos, santificado sea tu nombre. Venga tu reino, hágase tu voluntad como en el, como en el cielo, así también en la tierra. El pan nuestro de cada día, dánoslo hoy, y perdónanos nuestras deudas, como también nosotros perdonamos a nuestros deudores. Y no nos metas en tentación, mas líbranos del mal, porque tuyo es el reino y el poder y la gloria por todos los siglos. Amén. Porque si perdonáis a los hombres sus ofensas, os perdonará también a vosotros vuestro Padre Celestial. Mas si no perdonáis a los hombres sus ofensas, tampoco vuestro Padre os perdonará vuestras ofensas. Cuando ayunéis, no seáis austeros como los hipócritas, porque ellos demudan sus rostros para mostrar a los hombres que ayunan. De cierto os digo que ya tienen su recompensa. Pero tú, cuando ayunes, unge tu cabeza y lava tu rostro, para no mostrar a los hombres que ayunas, sino a tu padre que está en secreto. Y tu padre que ve en lo secreto te recompensará en público. This is the word of the Lord. Gracias a Dios. So, prayer. What exactly is prayer? Uh, why exactly is prayer important? Why do we pray? Uh, well, those are actually questions I don't know that we wrestle with often enough. What exactly is prayer and why does uh, the Bible and in this passage here, why does Jesus call us to prayer? Well, what we're going to see today is for those that are in Christ's kingdom, the posture of prayer actually says a lot about how we understand our place within the kingdom of God. So if you're a Christian here, the way in which we pray says volumes about how we understand our relationship to the kingdom of God as citizens of this kingdom. And so what I want to do today, we're going uh, to continue on with our series, Thy Kingdom Come, looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, and I'm going to jump right in. Let's take a look at what Jesus teaches us about prayer by looking at these three things. He teaches us how not to pray, then he teaches us how to pray, and then finally what we're going to see is how prayer changes us. Okay, so what not to do, what to do, and how it changes us. So first, how not to pray. Uh, Jesus begins by confronting one of the most uh, common tendencies of the human heart, pride. Uh, he has over and over again done this throughout the course of his sermon. Jesus is forcing us consistently 
to look outside of ourselves. Again, over and over again, he's been challenging the ways that too often we think very highly of ourselves and do not love God or love others, love our neighbor as we should. And so what we see here is no different. I mean, if you remember, Jesus has uh, already at this point, he's challenged the self-centeredness in us that often uh, brings an apathy toward the poor and the oppressed and those who are mourning. He's challenged us by uh, calling us to be a people of righteousness and mercy. He calls out our unrighteous anger. He puts in front of us the lusts of the heart. He puts in front of us what it means to break promises as a result of selfishness. He's shown us the ways that selfishness can lead us toward vengeance and how so often our inability to love our enemies as Christ loves us shows the extent to which we are more often focused on self than we are on what God desires of us. And even our lack of generosity, which we looked at last week, even our lack of generosity can be rooted in selfishness, self-centeredness. All of this, Jesus says, is inappropriate for those who are in his kingdom. But now what we see is actually really fascinating, something that interests me greatly about Jesus' turn here is that here, now Jesus begins to use prayer as another means by which to get at the selfish motivations that tend to exist within us. I mean, look at verse 5. Jesus says, And when you pray, let me just pause there, pause there for a second. When we pray, Jesus is, first of all, assuming that we're praying. Okay? He's assuming that his listeners understand the importance of prayer. He's assuming they are praying. Why? Because prayer is a foundational spiritual practice. I mean, the testimony of the scriptures is that prayer or communication with God is actually vital to our spiritual health because there is a direct correlation between our prayer life and our reliance and trust on the work of God in our lives. And in a moment, we're going to discuss what we ought to consider about prayer and why we pray and how to pray. But at least for right now, let's just take Jesus' words and assume that prayer is a vital practice in the life of those who are part of his kingdom. So Jesus assumes this to be the case. But then he goes on to show the ways that prayer itself is actually not sufficient. He continues by saying this. He says, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray. Stop there for a second. Is that, is that bad? Is it bad that one loves to pray? Well, of course not. But Jesus goes on to say, he continues, to show that they don't actually love to pray, but rather what they love, in Jesus' words here, is standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others when they pray. He goes on. And he says, do not keep babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Verse 8, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask it. In other words, Jesus is challenging this notion of those who like to pray with big words, many words, because they like to sound impressive. Because while others might be impressed, Jesus is really putting this in front of them because God's not impressed. Though other people may be impressed, God is not impressed. And if prayer is for the sake of communion with God, then why bother at all? Prayer is not that which proves one's faithfulness to God, but rather, according to Jesus, the motives and the attitudes of prayer 
are the standards. Because like everything else, even prayer can be a means of self-centeredness that lacks love for God and love for others and instead just focuses attention on self. Now, with all of that said, we should probably clarify a few things. Because Jesus is, of course, not downplaying the importance of something like public prayer or even saying that prayer in the synagogues or prayer on the street corners is necessarily bad. Instead, what he's saying is that public or what he, um, he would certainly affirm is that public prayer is an important spiritual practice. We do it here every single week and we do it intentionally because public prayer, corporate prayer, it does unify people together. But what he's doing is he's challenging the audience of prayer. I mean, what is prayer for? For Jesus, the hypocrite prays in order to be heard and embraced by those who are listening. But the righteous pray in order to be heard and embraced by God. And that is a very different motivation for prayer. And the other thing to note here is that prayer is not the only spiritual practice that can be utilized for selfish reasons. There are many different types of spiritual practices that can be perverted into becoming self-centeredness. I don't have time to get fully into the spiritual practice of fasting. That would actually be a whole other topic. But in verse 16 and 17, Jesus uses fasting, another spiritual practice, as another example of how one can use a good and right and true spiritual practice for selfish reasons. I mean, he's saying that people will use the sacrifice that one might give as, uh, as um, in their fast to gain the favor of other, of other people. But that principle, it's important just to note, the principle of a spiritual practice being used for selfish gain is for all the different spiritual practices. All of them. I mean, think about it. Imagine them. Reading your Bible, you can do for selfish reasons. Right? You can come to church for selfish reasons. You can give generously for selfish reasons. And Jesus here is challenging that notion. Now, I grew up in the church, and so I'm about to say, I can say with confidence, uh, I have fallen into this regularly. Uh, I have seen others fall into this uh, over the course of my growing up in the church. Uh, I've been in vocational ministry for a long time, and I've been in vocational ministry in numerous different church traditions. I've been in uh, ministry in both the local church and in, uh, out, you know, outside of the local church. I've studied in multiple theological institutions and, and church traditions. I'm saying all that because everybody falls into this. No one has really mastered what it means to have spiritual practices that don't at some times and at some points turn into self-glorification. I've seen myself fall into it across that spectrum. I've seen others fall into it across that spectrum. That the good and right true things that God desires from his people are used selfishly. You know, I've seen acquisitions of, of Bible and theological knowledge, boldness in evangelism, again, the, the giving of tithe, church attendance, and even pursuits of justice, and many other good things absolutely be used for the purpose of what Jesus says here, to be seen by others. And as a result, all those good things, they cease being righteous as a result of the arrogance or the self-centeredness that we so easily weave into what other, otherwise might be good 
practices. I mean, this is what the uh, prophet Isaiah, famously in Isaiah 64, speaking of good and righteous deeds, he says this to the people. He says, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Or the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 speaks of how our acts of worship are nothing more than noisy, clanging symbols because we've woven selfishness into very good things. And on top of that, let's be real. I mean, even self-centeredness doesn't always need an audience. Remember once Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a famous theologian, once said this. He said, it's even more pernicious if I turn myself into a spectator of my own prayer for performance. I can lay on a very nice show for myself, even in the privacy of my own room. You ever been there? It's even impressed with your own piety before the Lord. So Jesus is telling us here, check your motivations. When we pray or engage in spiritual practices, ensure that God is at the center of those practices, not our own vain pursuits, our own vanity. But Jesus doesn't only tell us here how not to pray. He also tells us how we ought to pray. Let's take a look at that. Verses 9 through 13, we see the Lord's Prayer. Now, given that we pray this prayer every single week here at our church, I think it's worth considering why Jesus gives us this prayer and why, as a result, we actually do find it important to pray every single week. Uh, coming out of this condemnation that Jesus has just leveled about inappropriate prayer, Jesus then says, he goes on to say in verse 9, that's not how you should pray. This is how you should pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, I'm not kidding when I say this, but we could spend an entire series length amount of time on this prayer, and I think we most certainly will at some point. But what I want us to see today, the takeaway that I want us to have today, is the way in which this prayer actually challenges the self-centeredness that we tend to so easily fall into. What we have here is not some wooden prayer that we pray ritualistically, but rather what we see is a prayer that gives us a framework for how we ought to pray. What it does is the content of this prayer presents to us a particular kind of heart posture that we should have when we pray. And so while there's many different ways to break down this prayer, for today, I want to just quickly give you six different emphases that I see within this, within this prayer. And again, many people break this down in different kinds of ways, but let me put in front of, in front of you six of them because each, I think, really gets at what is necessary for the arrogant pride that tends to well up in us to be defeated? Jesus provides it for us here in the prayer. All right, let's just consider first. Jesus starts off by saying, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let's stop there for a minute. Jesus starts by taking our eyes off the glory of ourselves and placing our eyes on the glory of the Father. I mean, all spiritual practices, including prayer, must keep God at the center. And Jesus is making that clear from the beginning. How can we be full of pride if we truly glorify him 
above all things, not ourselves. The second thing, Jesus goes on. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Stop there. I mean, this is a statement full of complete trust in the purposes of God. Purposes that are superior to our own. It is a, a committal of my whole life being to that which he desires, what he commands, what he wills to occur. I mean, how can I be full of pride when I prioritize his will over my own? We go on. Give us this day our daily bread. I mean, this is a reminder that God is powerful. He's all-knowing, right? We just talked about how he is to be glorified above all things. His kingdom shall never end. And yet he's also a God who cares for the needs, the daily needs of his people. And he's not so glorious that he does not see us individually for his compassion toward us reveals that very glory. And how can we be full of pride when we remember that the God of the universe desires to meet our most basic needs? Fourthly, he goes on and forgive our debts. I mean, this is, of course, a reminder that we are sinful people who too often do not glorify God as we should. We don't trust his kingdom. We don't seek to live in response to his commands. Yet when we come in faith and confession that we're forgiven, I mean, how can we be full of pride when we remember the depths of our own sin and our own need for forgiveness? Verse, uh, number five, verse 14 and 15, he goes on, uh, and it also, uh, I'm sorry, forgive us our debts and also um, as we have forgiven our debtors, right? In verses four and five of our, verses 14 and 15 of our passage, Jesus goes on and he says, for if you forgive other people when they have sinned against you, your heavenly father uh, will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. What's going on there? Well, Jesus is reminding us that forgiven people are people who know the extent to which they have been given and so as a result are able to then go and forgive others. In fact, to say it in another way, our inability to forgive is often a measure of whether or not we realize the extent to which we've been forgiven and how can we be full of pride? If I know that I am no better than others and that I need forgiveness as much as they do, the sixth thing, the final thing to put in front of you, as Jesus said, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The Apostle Paul in uh, Ephesians 6 reminds us of Jesus' words in a different way. He tells us that we wrestle not in this, in this life. We do not wrestle against uh, flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. That there is an evil one who desires to tempt us away from the Father. And it is the trust and the deliverance of God that keeps us from falling. How can we be full of pride when we remember that there are evil forces, an evil one that seeks to dissuade us from trusting God and forces us to trust in, rely upon his protection? How can we be so full of pride when we need to trust in him in that way? The point just being this. Jesus is giving us more than a wooden prayer that we're just supposed to pray habitually. It's a framework of prayer that builds our faith because in the words of John the Baptist, what we ultimately need is we need to see him increase 
We need to see ourselves decrease. And this kind of prayer reminds us just how much we actually need God. It puts our eyes on him, takes our eyes off of ourselves. This, my friends, is the point of the Lord's Prayer. It's an antidote to the sickness of self-centeredness and pride. And again, friends, this is just too often not how we live. And even in the way that we pray, it shows that to be true. We don't seek the glory of God, for too often we seek our own glory. We too often do not obey God or trust his will or reflect his kingdom or desire to be righteous and pure. Instead of that, we say, "Mm, no, thanks, I'll live as I please. Don't tell me what to do. You know, when he says, reflect my kingdom, be just and prioritize the weak, we say, no, let them take care of themselves. We're full of worry, doubting God's provision and goodness. We don't, seek for, we don't seek forgiveness, and as a result, we don't give forgiveness. We refuse to see the ways that we are tempted by the evil one in our natural state. And so as a result, we constantly are falling for his schemes. And Jesus is coming to us and saying that this prayer, a true trust in this kind of prayer, works against all of those selfish tendencies that will ultimately be our undoing. But not only does Jesus hear, not only does he tell us what not to do, he also tells us what we ought to do, but then what we begin to see is that as we really do trust in the kinds of things Jesus presents to us in this prayer, we begin to see how it changes us. Let's look at that finally. There's a couple of statements in this passage that stick out to me as Jesus is talking about prayer and fasting. Uh, When speaking of prayer in verse 6, he says, But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is in heaven. But then he goes on in verse 8 to tell us that when we pray, to remember that the Father knows what you need before you ask him. Find that interesting. I mean, why is Jesus, Jesus then telling us to pray when the content of our prayer is already known to the one to whom we're praying? What then is the point if God already knows? And even more, in verse 7, uh, verse seven and in verse uh, 18, Jesus talks about a reward to those who do so. Well, there's probably a lot of different places that we could go to get our heads around everything that Jesus is saying here. But I want us to consider an interesting interaction that Jesus has with a man in Mark chapter 9. It houses one of my favorite passages simply because of how much it resonates with me, but just really quick on the context. In in Mark 9, Jesus is interacting with a father whose son is afflicted by demon possession. And this father comes to Jesus looking for compassion, and healing for his child. And within that interaction, we see a really beautiful picture of how praying rightly actually does change us. Uh, In verse 23 of, of Mark 9, Jesus says this to the Father. He says, If you can believe that all things are possible to him who believes, immediately, he goes on to say, that the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe help my unbelief. Now, let me point out a few things about that interaction and show you how it kind of connects to what I'm saying here. 
So first, it's worth noting that the father cries out. Right? This is happening in public. He cries out. But he doesn't cry out for attention. Right? There's a genuine outpouring of emotion that's happening here. But the second thing that stands out to me is the prayer itself. The prayer is actually a prayer that really encompasses so much of what we've already said. I mean, just let's look at that prayer quickly. First, the man prays. He says to Jesus, Lord, I believe. What is that? What, is that? what exactly is it that he believes? Well, Jesus had just said, well, all things are possible to him who believe. And so the, this father is saying, I believe. I believe that all things are possible. But then he goes on and he says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I mean, this is a man who comes in faith and trust in the Lord, but who also acknowledges his weakness and his inadequacy. The way we pray says a lot about our trust in God and what we need from the Lord. And what I see here is I see a man who prays in both faith and weakness, both of which become necessary to ultimately trust God in all things. And it's the kind of prayer that God desires from us. I mean, think about it this way. Self-oriented prayers often lack one of these two responses, faith or weakness. And what I mean is this, self-oriented prayers that lack faith, they tend to be prayers that really emphasize my unbelief. And often it's prayers that uh, can be self-flagellating, you know, I'm so awful, awful, woe is me, God will never hear my prayer. Why do I even bother praying these kinds of prayers? They, they really lack a kind of faith that God desires to hear our prayers. And that's not God glorifying, that's just self-oriented again. But the other way, the other way to fail here is that self-oriented prayers that lack an acknowledgement of weakness, right, that notion of help my unbelief, those are prayers that can very quickly become self-glorifying I mean, if you've ever been in a place where you feel like your faith is strong, ironically, in the moments where you feel like your faith is most strong can be some of the times when you think most highly of yourself. And so this God-glorifying prayer, it needs to include both faith to believe that, yes, all things are possible, and at the same time, also acknowledge my weakness. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Just those, how many words is that? One, two, three, four, five words is a prayer that reflects the entire Lord's Prayer. It's simple, and yet it gets at exactly what we're talking about. We take our eyes off ourselves, place our eyes on the only one who deserves our glo the glory. It glorifies God, and it recognizes the power that exists in his kingdom and his will. It acknowledges that God cares about my need, but it also recognizes my weakness and my need for him desperately in my weakness. And probably what's another better example was the example that Jesus gives to us in Matthew 26. Remember that story? Jesus, he's preparing for his coming death, and he's in anguish. And as he's in anguish, he prays this prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's a prayer that's, of course, very famous and well-known, but again, gets at exactly what we're talking about here. He says, Father, you know, thinking about the coming crucifixion, he says, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. 
And we're told that he prayed that prayer three different times. Father, if it's possible, let this pass for me. Let this pass for me. Let this pass for me. But if you know the prayer, that's not the only thing that he repeated over and over again. Remember the other part of the prayer? He says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. What is that? He's, he's responding to that very notion of what he had put in front of the Father, that all things are possible. Jesus is trusting that God has sent him to accomplish, the Father has sent him to accomplish this great work. Jesus is embracing that work that he came to accomplish on the cross by trusting the will of the Father. The death and the resurrection of Jesus. What's the will of the Father? And the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that's what proves what Jesus said to the Father in Mark 9, that all things are possible. But also Jesus is reminding us here that he is a Savior who understands our weakness. And in our weakness, his obedience at this moment becomes our strength. His ability to go to the cross, obedience to the will of the Father, gives us the strength to also now trust the Father as we seek to glorify him in our lives, in our prayers. And so I put all of this together just to say, on the one hand, there is a way in which we should pray. And hear me, that prayer should absolutely be not self-oriented, not self-glorifying, but put God, puts God at the center. And there's a trust in him. But it's also a recognition that we are weak and that we will never have the strength to be fully and completely a people of the kinds of faith that Jesus puts in front of us. And it's in that weakness we can look on a savior who understands that weakness and yet is strong for us. And I'll tell you, as we trust in his strength, it makes us all the more strong. And so I, I pray that we're like the Father in Mark 9. Goodness, I think about that prayer all the time. I pray that we become more and more people like that, people of great faith, and yet also people that recognize weakness. Lord, I believe. Help my own belief. And I trust that as we pray that kind of prayer, as we take our eyes off ourselves and on to God, that we will more and more people that are able to reflect the goodness and the glory of that God in our everyday lives, it changes us. May the Spirit of God make it so in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are a great and mighty and powerful and glorious God. Yet you're also a God who is near, close, who desires Lord, to uh, meet our even smallest needs. And so, God, we ask that by your Spirit, you would make us a people who recognize your glory, but also recognize our weakness. And as we recognize our weakness, that we would look upon the strength of our Savior, the one who has accomplished much for us. And so, Lord, we believe. Would you help our unbelief? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church 
and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.